0: Well, church family, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm excited for this new series in Jonah. If you're new with us, if you're a guest, if you're just visiting, this is a great time for you to, to visit. We're, we've just finished Philippians, and we're going to start Jonah for the next four weeks in August. Then we're going to start the life of David in the fall. So let's pray again, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word in Jonah chapter 1. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge together that you, you speak to us. That's really why we gather. We've been called out as you've worked through the preaching or the proclamation or the announcing of your word. We've been gathered as a people. And from the beginning of the church, we see your people gathered. Gathered for fellowship. Gathered to sing. Gathered to take the Lord's Supper together. Gathered for the preaching of your word. And we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word in Jonah chapter 1. Help us to see with greater clarity who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit. Your abounding and patient love. And I pray that we would not only know the truth, but that our hearts would be affected by the truth. That we would love you with greater fervor. That we would long to follow you. um, That we would long to make you known in the world around us. You are our great treasure. And we want to see you this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I've been leaning on the British the last couple weeks in illustrations. Uh, This is Jonathan Gibson. He's an author of our day who points out some categories that help us understand God. Now, these categories that I'm about to give you are not new or original to Jonathan Gibson, but I think they're helpful to help us understand the passage this morning. So he says that there are some common ways that we think about God. Some of us picture God as a demanding headmaster of a school. They have a rule book in one hand and a baton in the other. And this God, he's waiting for us to break the rules, the rules that he has set so that he's able to rain down punishment upon us. Some of us have that view of God. Others of us view God more as a tolerant grandfather, beaming with a permissive smile, He's not expecting much from us at all, except that we we try our best. Now, Gibson's summary is that our temperament, our background, our experiences are the main factor in determining which of these two pictures of God comes most naturally to us. Now, of course, neither view is helpful or true. And the Old Testament book of Jonah provides us with an accurate view of God. And we're calling our our August sermon series, The Abounding Love of God. And we'll spend the next four weeks looking at Jonah. And in Jonah, in the book of Jonah, in the story of Jonah, we have a picture of our God's love for his people. Here's what we see. God's abounding love is in perfect harmony with God's commitment to judge the world in righteousness. God's promise of judgment includes an offer of mercy. And this promise of judgment and this offer of mercy is not just for the people of Israel, it's for every nation on earth. Every nation is accountable to God. And God desires every nation to ring with the melody of His mercy. And so this morning's main idea is this. Fear God, slow to anger, And abounding in love. Now, fear is a tricky thing because we normally associate fear with something that's not positive. But in this case, fear of God, it is positive. And I want us to see this morning different ways that we fear God, elements of that that are good for us. We'll look at awe and trembling and gladness, all produced as we fear God as He intends us. To fear him. And my prayer is that we're stirred and affected this morning as we stare at the abounding and patient love of God. In verses one through three, I want us to see that we have a more faithful prophet. Look at verse one of Jonah chapter one. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Now, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, the self-existent God, the God who has existed in eternity, the God who keeps his word, the God who is able to fulfill on his purposes, that God speaks to Jonah. That God chooses to reveal himself to us. And in his speaking, God is demonstrating his grace to us. Now, Jonah is a prophet. And the job of a prophet is to tell people God's word. The prophet stands between the God who speaks and the people who need to respond. Now, we know from 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah is a prophet during King the II's reign, which from, is from 782 to 753 B.C. The main enemy of the Israelites at this point in time are the Assyrians. Now, Jonah's name means dove. Now, unfortunately for all the doves, God thinks of doves as silly and senseless according to Hosea 7:11. So I'm sorry to all the doves. Jonah is the son of Amittai, which literally means son of my faithfulness. That's who Jonah is. Now, what was the word that God spoke to Jonah? Look at verse 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, God wants Jonah to arise and to go to Nineveh, which is about 500 miles miles northeast of where Jonah probably is. And God tells us why he wants Jonah to call out against Nineveh. Look at verse 2. For their evil has come up before me. Now, I doubt very much that at this point the Ninevites care at all about whether or not God is angry with them for their sin. I don't think that the Ninevites understand themselves to be accountable to God. But God feels differently. Their evil has come up to the Lord. He knows about their evil. He sees and hears of their evil. And notice what happens. He's moving toward them as he sees them. As their evil comes up before the Lord he moves toward them by speaking to Jonah on their behalf. The same would apply to all of us this morning. If you are a human being, then you are accountable to God, to Yahweh. Now, I always assumed that the word for evil here was just a synonym, tightly, narrowly, for sin. As if it's saying the sin of the Ninevites came up to God. But the idea here is broader than just personal sin and rebellion. The Hebrew word here is ra'ah. And it's translated with the word cluster evil or disaster or discomfort. You can see on this slide from the ESV Study Bible how this word is used differently in the book of Jonah. Sometimes translated evil, sometimes translated disaster, sometimes translated displeased or discomfort. It's a broad word. And here's why I, how I think we're to understand this. Ra'ah is narrowly the personal sin and rebellion of the Ninevites, and they were were rough people, but it's also all the attending effects of sin on creation. Okay? You might think of it like a general malaise hanging over the city of Nineveh. It's their personal sin. It's the effect of their sin on one another, on themselves. It's this general discontent with the way things are in Nineveh because of sin's presence. Now, how does Jonah respond? Look at verse three. Famously, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is repeated three times in this verse, and this is one of these words that's hard to repeat three times in a row. (laughs) But Jonah rose and he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Remember, his name means silly and senseless. We know that he cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. But he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now the Holy Spirit makes it clear by repeating Tarshish that Jonah is fleeing the opposite direction from where God has called him to go. And he's attempting to flee God's presence. But in Psalm 139 we know very well that we can't flee from God's presence. Even if we go into the heart of the sea, we cannot flee the presence of the Lord. Now here's a map. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but the best guess is it's in the south of Spain. So Jonah goes from where he is down to Joppa. He buys a ticket on a Mediterranean ship that's sailing probably to the south of Spain. Now, why does Jonah run? Is he afraid of the Ninevites? Is he afraid to speak out to the Ninevites about what God has said? Is he just longing for a cruise on the Mediterranean? What is Jonah doing? Why is he fleeing from God's word? Why is he trying to escape God's presence? Well, at this point in the book of Jonah, we don't know for sure. But by the time we get to chapter 4, we have an idea. See, the Ninevites were Assyrians. And as I said, the Assyrians were the arch enemy of Israel, At this time. And in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah collapses in a puddle of disgust and self pity, and he prays this prayer to the Lord O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is why Jonah flees. Jonah knows that embedded in this word of judgment is an offer of mercy. Listen, if Jonah knew that all he needed to do was pronounce judgment and then God's wrath would fall on the Ninevites, he would be on his way, in haste, to Nineveh, to declare God's coming judgment. But Jonah knows that implied in God's word of judgment, there is an offer of mercy, and Jonah does not want the Ninevites to repent, and he does not want God to forgive them. And so he gets on the ship, and he sails to Tarshish. And so we see we need a more faithful prophet than Jonah. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1 The writer says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, meaning the days that you and I are living in now, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, we need a better prophet than Jonah, a more faithful prophet than Jonah, who would speak God's word of judgment and make God's offer of forgiveness. And in that we have Christ. And we saw this in our study of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, God In in Jonah, God calls Jonah to leave his home and to go to Nineveh and to proclaim judgment and to offer forgiveness. Of course, Jonah doesn't want to announce these things, and so Jonah refuses because he doesn't want God to be merciful. But in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, we see that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God calls Jesus, a prophet, his own son, to leave his home in heaven, to come to a new land, and to proclaim coming judgment and the mercy of God. And he comes. In Christ, we have a more faithful prophet. Now, the main idea this morning is that we might fear God, slow to anger, abounding in love. As I said, fear of God is an interesting concept because we don't normally associate fear with something positive. But fear can be healthy. For example, fear instructs us not to play with fire or to fool around on the edge of a cliff or to pet a lion Fear is a good thing, or it can be a good thing. Fear of God is healthy if we bring a right understanding to it. Fear of God begins with awe or reverence or respect. When we come face to face with God's abounding and patient love, a sense of gravitas covers our hearts. You see that whenever human beings come in contact with God, you see this sense of awe over who he is. Fear of God begins with awe. He moves toward us in our sin. He cares about the rebellion. He is mighty. He is majestic. He is holy and righteous. And he moves toward us. There should be a sense of awe that fills our hearts. And this sense of awe should produce in us obedience. A responsiveness to the God who speaks to us. It didn't in Jonah in this instance... But we should listen to God and his word. We should see who he is. We should hear what he has to say. And we should move to respond and following Jesus' example of obedience. Otherwise, our so-called fear of God is empty and hollow. And that's what we see in Jonah. Look at verses 4 through 10. See, Jonah is trying to flee God's presence. And first, God in his abounding love sends a storm. And then God sends a lot. To to Jonah, look at verse verses four through six. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain Came down and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not also perish. God hurls a great wind at the sea, and the sea begins to rage and to roar. Now, the word repetition in Jonah is really interesting. If you're able to slow down over the next few weeks and just take a look at Jonah, just take out a highlighter and mark repeated words. Four times this verb, to hurl, is seen in chapter, chapter one. And that's not even the vomiting of the fish in the next chapter. <laughs> the word repetition is fascinating. The wind causes the sea to become a mighty tempest. And the violent storm threatens to break up the ship. And the sailors are afraid, also used four times. And they cry out to their gods and they begin to hurl cargo overboard to try to lighten this ship and keep it from breaking apart. But Jonah is fast asleep in the bottom of the ship. And the captain exhorts him to call on his God. Perhaps that God will be able to save us from perishing. You see, the sailors understand that divine authority and power is behind this storm. They can see that with clarity. They're just misunderstanding who this God is. Now in Samuel chapter 5, There's this great story of the Philistines, the enemies of God's people at that time. And the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is where God chose to dwell and where his presence was particularly at that time. Dwelling over the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Philistines take the Ark and they bring it to their city, Ashdod. And they put the Ark in the temple of their god, Dagon. Okay? They go to sleep that night and they wake up the next morning and they come into the temple of Dagon and they see this huge statue of Dagon face down on the floor before the Ark of the Covenant. Well, this is strange. And so they pick up the statue of Dagon. They pick up their God and they put him back where he's supposed to be. And they go to bed that night and they get up the next morning. And they come back into the temple of Dagon. And this time, Dagon is back on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. But there's something different. This time, Dagon's head has been decapitated and his hands have been cut off. And they're sitting nicely at the threshold of his own temple. Now, why am I telling this story? Because no matter how much these sailors cry out to their gods, they will not answer. Because Yahweh has done this. The God of Jonah, the creator of all things, has caused this storm. And there is no God who is going to be able to stop this storm except Yahweh. So the sailors may cry out to their gods, but they're either silent because they don't exist, or they're demons who have no authority to stand before the weight and power of our God. Look at verses 7 through 10. And the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Really? The God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land and the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him what is this you have done for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the lord because he had told them these non these these sailors who do not believe in yahweh who serve other gods see with clarity that jonah serves the god who is the creator of all things, including the sea that is raging around them. And so now they're exceedingly afraid because Jonah has offended the God who is in charge of the storm that is about to threaten their lives. And they rightly perceive that Jonah has sinned against his God, that he's rebelled against God, that he does not fear the Lord as he says he does, because when the Lord's word came to him, he moved in the opposite direction. Now they know that god's anger takes the form of this violent storm and they are desperate for help and they feel their vulnerability now the lot falls on jonah and they demand to know what he's done and he explains what he's done and what we see here is that there, there is a more intense storm coming more intense than this storm the sailors feel desperate they feel vulnerable they feel threatened by this storm and they perceive jonah's sin In Exodus 34, verse 6, God comes comes to Moses and explains his name. And in his name, God explains his very character. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed to him, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, And sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Is God the demanding headmaster, or is He the indulgent grandfather, or is He something very different and far more compelling? The Lord is slow to anger and He's patient, but He does get angry. He abounds in steadfast love and in faithfulness, but this is not in conflict with his faithful judgment of sin. God will take up his sword against the evil, the disaster, the discomfort, the ra'ah caused by our rebellion and our sin. And the Bible makes it clear that Jesus himself is the judge who will take up this sword. 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all, every one of us, Ninevites and Jews, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Or 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Jesus is the judge. God has given Jesus the authority to execute his just and righteous judgment. And his judgment will be Intense. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. Here's a summary Hell is a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25. It's a place of eternal punishment with no exit door, Matthew 25. It's a place of hunger, mourning, and weeping, Luke 6. It's a place of fire that will never be quenched, Mark 9. It's a place of torment, Luke 16. It's a furnace of everlasting fire, Matthew 13 and 18. Our statement of faith summarizes it this way. Hell is an everlasting, conscious place of suffering for the lost. A more intense storm is coming upon the earth, and any person who understands the intensity will tremble before the Lord. You see, fearing God begins with awe. Who is this God abounding in love? Who is this God who pursues and, and speaks? But fearing God doesn't end with a sense of awe. Fearing God includes trembling over his holiness and his power. We can't domesticate God editing out the aspects of his personality that we don't enjoy Jesus will come with power and bring judgment against the evil and the disaster and the discomfort that sin has introduced into creation. We can't avoid God. Jesus is the great God of the whole earth. We will all appear before him, every one of us, the Jews in Israel, the Ninevites in Nineveh, and all the Americans in D.C. In the sailors, we have a picture of what it will be like to come face to face with the wrath of God, Utter vulnerability, knowing that we have no ability to stand before this power. And in the sailors, we see the brilliant offer of God's mercy. Remember, this is why God sends Jonah. He goes to Nineveh bearing a promise of judgment and an offer of mercy. And this ultimately comes through a more powerful substitute than Jonah could ever be. Look at verses 11 through 17. Then the sailors said to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea then the sea will quiet down for you for i know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you the sailors want to know what can we do to make this stop what do we have to do to you to make the storm stop for us and jonah says throw me overboard and if you throw me overboard then the raging sea will stop jonah must serve as their substitute for the sailors to be spared from God's judgment in this storm. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. They're good-hearted men. They don't want to throw them in. For but they could not. They could not row back to dry land for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They have nothing to do. They're trying everything to avoid throwing Jonah overboard, but the storm is only raging with more violence. And so they pray for God's mercy. They recognize that Jonah is an innocent man, which he's not. And then they throw Jonah into the sea. Verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, And the sea ceased from its raging. Now, we've heard this story, many of us, so many times. We know this is coming, we know the sea is going to stop. But just imagine you're the sailors for a moment. And I mean, your heart rate is just so high. And then the sea stops, and the wind is calm. The sea is like glass. And you realize that this man, Jonah, just gave his life for you. And then something miraculous happens. The sailors make sacrifices. They make promises. They cry out to the Lord. They seem to be worshiping him. It's miraculous. And then, in an even more astounding miracle, God demonstrates mercy to Jonah in the form of this great fish that swallows him whole, and it's in this fish's belly that Jonah will live for the next three days and three nights, but not knowing how long he's going to be there. Jonah offered himself up as a substitute for the sailors, but we need a more powerful substitute than Jonah. Jonathan Gibson, who I mentioned earlier, tells us to imagine a prisoner exchange. Okay, so you've got armies lined up on either side of a truce line, and out of the one army comes this prisoner who walks across to the middle. Now, what would you think if this herd of goats is released on the other side from the other army, right? We know this is not a good trade. This is not a prisoner trade. We need the right kind of substitute, and the blood of animals won't take away sins, and the blood of a sinful, rebellious prophet is not what we need either. Jesus, the sinless one, needs to jump into the storm of God's righteous anger at us for our sin so that we go free. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He, didn't, he knew of it in that he was in the world and he knew what sin was, but he was not acquainted with it. He didn't know what it felt like to sin. Why? so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. He jumps overboard, he quiets the storm of God's wrath, and we now wear his righteousness. Or Galatians 3:13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Later look up Hebrews 4:14 4, to 16. But for now, for the sake of time, Jesus was the sinless high priest. Who didn't need to make a sacrifice for himself and then a sacrifice on behalf of the people? He was the righteous one, the righteous substitute who made one sacrifice for all time that would be sufficient for all who would believe. Fearing God does begin with awe, and it does include trembling over God's power and commitment to judge, but it fills with gladness over his mercy. Fear begins with awe. It includes trembling, but it must fill with gladness over his mercy. The abounding, patient love of God should produce gladness in our hearts. We were in the ship, headed for destruction, but Jesus jumps overboard in our place and quiets the storm. Charles Spurgeon says, Let us rejoice then in this, my beloved brothers and sisters, that we have such a substitute one who is fit and proper to stand in our place and suffer in our stead, seeing he has no need to offer a sacrifice for himself, no need to bend the knee of the repentant to confess his own iniquities, for he is without spot or blemish, the perfect lamb of God's Passover. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the storm has stopped raging because of the powerful substitute of Jesus. There's nothing left for us but gladness. So, is God the demanding headmaster or is he the indulgent grandfather? Well, he's neither. In his abounding love, he moves toward the rebellion and the brokenness in Nineveh and in Jonah and in the sailors and in you and me. He moves toward us with a promise of judgment a severe storm on the sea, a warning to turn from sin and trust Christ. And he moves toward us with an offer of mercy, repent and trust and live according to God's word. So how do you view God? Honestly, how does God seem to you? Is God the demanding headmaster who makes you feel like you're constantly performing and never satisfying him? Or is God the indulgent grandfather who convinces you that there really are no limits or accountability? Or does God abound in steadfast love and faithfulness? Is He slow to anger, patient in His love, but ultimately unwilling to let the guilty go unpunished? What we'll see over the next three weeks together is that God's abounding love is on full display In the story of Jonah. And it's on full display now. Even this morning, God is moving toward us in our sin with an offer of mercy. And here's how he fuses his love and his justice it's in Romans 3. You can look it up later 23 through 26. He becomes both the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus and remains just by letting Jesus be the satisfaction of his anger toward us. Jesus jumps into the wrath of God, and he quiets it because he is our sinless substitute. And we who are his are clothed in his righteousness. Let's pray. God, your abounding love toward us in Christ is astounding. And I pray that it wouldn't grow old. This is a story that many of us have heard many times before. And my prayer is that we would see in a fresh way, be affected in a fresh way by your great and abounding love for us. Remind us that you are patient with us, not wanting any to perish. And so I pray that this morning, if there are... Our friends here who haven't yet come to faith in Christ, Holy Spirit, would you pierce their hearts so that they feel your abounding love for them in Christ? And for those of us who are yours already, who are experiencing the weight of sin and the guilt of sin, would you remind us this morning that we are clothed totally with Christ's righteousness and that when you look at us, you see us complete and pure as your bride. Amen. Amen.